0: Over the past decade, there's been about a 700% increase in the cases of congenital syphilis in the U.S. Let that number sit in for just a minute. That's 700%. Rates of congenital syphilis, that's the number of cases for every 100,000 live births, have been the highest in the South and the Southwest. This has included states like Arizona, New Mexico, Louisiana, Mississippi, and my home state of Texas. Individual states have seen increases that are eye-opening. From 2016 to 2021, cases shot up over 3,000% in Mississippi and 3,000% in Oklahoma. There's been more than a 2,000% increase in congenital syphilis in Hawaii and more than 1,800% in Washington. These numbers are astronomical. We have covered screening and diagnosis of maternal syphilis in other episodes, and we focused on the traditional and the now favored reverse sequence algorithm, and you can find that in our archive from July the 3rd, 2022 having recently had concern for a child born at high risk for congenital syphilis. In this episode, we're gonna focus on the vertical transmission of syphilis and congenital syphilis. Ready? Lots to cover. So let's get in the vertical transmission of syphilis and congenital syphilis. This is Cade, I'm a third year medical student at Texas A&M University. I'm Kimia, I'm an undergraduate student at Texas A&M University. And this this is Clinical Pearls. Pearls. According to Dr. George Wendell, yes, that's Dr. Wendell from the American Board of OBGYN, and I'm proud to say my old attending at Parkland. Man, Dr. Wendell taught me so much. According to a report that he published back in 1999, along with a then fellow, Gene Sheffield, syphilis was actually not recognized as a morbid entity until the end of the 15th century. The prevailing theory is that its introduction to the old world from the Americas was really brought on by crew members from Christopher Columbus's voyages. Their return to Spain was concurrent with a great syphilis pandemic called the Great Pox, which spread throughout Europe from 1490 to 1500. This wonderful review of syphilis can be found online, again, that's authored by Jean Sheffield and Dr. Wendell, back in Clinical Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the title was Fitting Enough Syphilis in Pregnancy. Untreated syphilis during pregnancy can lead to miscarriage, preterm labor, stillbirth, neonatal death, or congenital syphilis with multi-system manifestations including deafness, neurological impairment, and bone deformities. We're going to get into congenital syphilis towards the end of the episode, so just put a pin in that for now. Remember that in this episode, we're focused on vertical transmission and how to prevent it. Vertical transmission from the infected mother to the child occurs most often prenatally, meaning in utero, but perinatal and postnatal transmissions have been described, although postnatal transmission is super, super rare. All right, podcast family, we're going to get right into it. So remember these high yield clinical pearls. Transmission of syphilis to the fetus can occur throughout pregnancy. Yes, spirochetes have been visualized in tissue from aborted fetuses as early as a gestational age of 8 to 9 weeks. And it can also occur with any stage of syphilis. So if you ever asked, when during pregnancy, can syphilis be transmitted to the child? The answer is yes. It can occur throughout pregnancy and with any stage. However, having said that, there are some new, Nuances to that that we're going to talk about. Transmission is possible and has been reported up to eight years after acquisition of infection if left untreated. Although the probability of vertical transmission actually does go down, with the longer existence of infection, it does not go down to zero. This was known previously as the observational law in epidemiology called Castlewitz Law. That's Castlewitz Law. That means that the rate of transmission to the child in utero seemed to go down the longer the mom had the infection. And yeah, I guess that's kind of reassuring, right? Hey, mom, you, you were first told you had syphilis 10 years ago and you never were treated. Now you're pregnant. Well, the chance actually goes down if you pass into the child. But is that really reassuring? I mean, it goes down. It doesn't eliminate it. It's not zero. <laughs> but all to say that's called Castlewitz Law this likelihood of vertical transmission is directly related to the maternal stage of syphilis and that's why with very late latent syphilis, the chance of passing it, which is still there, is lower than with early or more acute stages of infection. With early primary syphilis, there is a much higher rate of transmission than late latent syphilis. So once again, that's a big clinical pearl. As a med student and even as a resident, I always found syphilis, vertical transmission rates kind of confusing, but it's really not. You just kind of, kind of just sit back, let, look at it from a distance, the big picture, and remember that it can happen throughout all of pregnancy, and it can happen at any stage. But as we mentioned before, here's why this, these nuances matter, all right? And here is yet another clinical pearl. There seems to be this reverse transmission slash pathology relationship. All right. Reverse transmission slash pathology relationship. Here's what I mean by this. There's a higher rate of fetal mortality and morbidity when untreated syphilis occurs in the first trimester or the second trimester. All right. So high rate of fetal morbidity and mortality with untreated syphilis in the first or second trimester. However, vertical transmission is higher in the third trimester, but yet there's a higher percentage of infants being born asymptomatic when the infection happens in the third trimester. Does that make sense, or did I confuse everybody? (laughs) So very clearly, syphilis can happen all throughout pregnancy and at any stage. However, syphilis that occurs in the first or second trimester tends to be worse for the child, but thankfully transmission rates are lower, But later on in pregnancy, so if a patient first gets syphilis, you know, after, let's say, 24 weeks, there's a higher rate of transmission. However, most of those babies are born asymptomatic. See, this reverse transmission slash pathology relationship. Early on in pregnancy really bad for the kid, but less likely to be transmitted late in pregnancy. Actually, most babies are born asymptomatic. They're still infected, and that's where congenital syphilis comes in. They're still infected, so they may not have a direct stigmata of in utero transmission, but they're still infected and are at risk of even late congenital syphilis. However, most of those are asymptomatic at birth, all right? So asymptomatic at birth means that they're still infected. You they just, you just don't have any overt signs of it, all right? So there's this inverse relationship. First trimester, much worse for the child, um, but lower risk of infection. Third trimester, much higher risk of infection. But at birth, they're mainly asymptomatic, although they are still at risk for true early uh, congenital syphilis that we'll discuss in a minute. And then late congenital syphilis, which is at two years of life or more, I mean that's why for a patient who has syphilis in pregnancy who's not adequately treated or not treated at all, um, the baby's not out of the woods just because it looks okay at delivery, right? Because late congenital syphilis can occur after age two. So this is a diagnosis that really spans the early neonatal period and the early infant years. This is why so it's it's so important to identify these patients antepartum, get them screened, get them diagnosed, not just once in pregnancy, but for those that high risk in the third trimester, and then again at delivery, all right? So remember that. We're not going to say it again, but first trimester has different implications than third trimester, and let's leave it at that. I heard that said once to me, oh, this patient looks like she's a new diagnosis of syphilis in the third trimester, but that's okay because babies are usually born asymptomatic, Um, Like, that's a good thing. They're still infected. And just because they're born asymptomatic, as we've already stated, doesn't mean they're in the clear because, as we've already said, late congenital syphilis can happen later. And I remember this case so well. She had a negative, a non-treponemal test. And obviously, you know, we didn't reflex it to a specific, it was negative early on. And then we rechecked her at 28 weeks, and it was positive non-treponemal titer. We reflexed to a specific, and it was positive. So like, oh my goodness, you you somehow converted. Um, So we're going to go ahead and treat you, right? We'll talk about treatment in a minute. But that was told to me as an intern by my senior resident. Oh, she got in the third trimester, baby's going to be fine. Just because it's born looking okay doesn't mean it's fine. Baby's infected. Remember, third trimester has a higher rate of transmission. And so I always remember that that confused me like, wow, is that not a big deal? So let me state that right here. Yes, it is a big deal. What I was told as an intern, and still, you know, 20 years later, still with me, that was wrong. Is that crazy? I mean, things that you hear and then you propagate down the road, if it's wrong, can be really devastating. So third trimester infection is very high risk of passing to the child. But uh, even though the child can be born asymptomatic, isn't that's not a good thing for the child. I think it's worth saying that again just to pound it into our heads. And again, that's a big clinical pearl of this reverse relationship, if you will. The highest rate of fetal morbidity and mortality occurs with untreated first trimester or second trimester infection. However, vertical transmission is higher in the third trimester, yet there's a higher percentage of asymptomatic neonates. And the reason that that's the case has to do with the fetal immune response, okay? So these treponemes, they passed to the child in the first trimester. The child's um, immature immune system just kind of hangs out. Baby just kind of gets infected. And then around 18 or 20 weeks, as the child, as the fetus's immune response uh, grows and ramps up, then it causes the sequelae, the, the, the congenital malformations, uh, that's considered the traditional stigmata of infection. In the third trimester, the baby's still infected, right? Passes, spirochetes. the immune response is there. But because delivery likely will happen quicker than obviously in the first or second trimester, then some of those immune responses may not be there. The idea is that you're going to try to catch that at delivery, but you may not. and We'll talk about that difficulty in a, in a minute as well. Uh, that's why it's called the great imitator, right? Syphilis is tough, guys, especially on a newborn with a mom infected because it really limits how you investigate this child because of passive antibody from the mom to the baby. That baby's going to test positive, and we'll talk about that in a minute. All to say, in the third trimester, though the child is infected, the shorter time of that immune flare uh, decreases the chance of of physical stigmata, of organ uh, organ pathology, all right? So that's why most babies in the third trimester tend to be born asymptomatic without overt signs or symptoms uh, because the fetal immune response tends to be a, a shorter duration compared to exposure in the first and second trimester. Even though the majority of vertical transmission can happen in utero, there's a certain percentage that can actually happen during delivery where the child actually comes in contact with a sore in the vagina or in the cervix or in the labia. And so you get a delivery intrapartum, although most is antepartum in utero. And as we mentioned a little bit earlier, postnatal transmission from mother to child, like horizontal infection, is always possible, but it's really, really rare. So when we're talking about vertical transmission, it's mainly in utero or intrapartum, peripartum at time of delivery. All right, podcast family, this episode's full of clinical pearls, all right? So remember, while, all right, podcast family, lots of clinical pearls in this episode. We already talked about risk of transmission and implications for the child based on a trimester, right? We already covered that. But that's regarding pregnancy trimester itself. But there's something else to consider here in terms of vertical transmission, and that's stage of infection, all right? So we said while syphilis can be transmitted all throughout pregnancy and at any stage, It obviously matters which trimester you're in because it's a higher rate of transmission in the third trimester, and it also matters what stage the patient is in because there's a higher rate of vertical transmission in the early stages of syphilis, and the early stages includes primary and within four years of secondary syphilis, all right? So when can you pass syphilis to the child? Yes. The answer is yes. All throughout pregnancy and at any stage, although its highest transmission in the third trimester and highest with the early stages of syphilis, defined as primary and within four years of secondary syphilis. Why the four-year thing? Because it's been found that from acquisition of infection, To clinical presentation, meaning uh, primary syphilis as a chancre or secondary syphilis uh, with a mucopapular rash, to four years from that, that's when the patient is still highly uh, um, infected and with a lot of spirochetemia in the system. All right. So, primary and secondary syphilis uh, up within four years of that is considered early syphilis. Among women with untreated primary or secondary syphilis, the rate of transmission has been reported to be 60 to 100 percent, and then it slowly decreases with the later stages of maternal infection, to about 40 percent with early latent syphilis. But that 40% with early latent syphilis drops to 8% with late latent syphilis. Remember, we said it earlier that the rate of transmission is inversely proportional to the length of time that mom is infected without treatment. So, hey, you got syphilis 10 years ago, and you were never treated, and now you're pregnant? Okay, well, thankfully, your rate of transmission is only 8% compared to, say, 40% during uh, early latent syphilis. But that 8% is nothing we should celebrate. I mean, 8% is still 8%. That's a lot. Remember, any stage of syphilis and at any trimester, syphilis can be passed to the child. Remember those percentages that we just stated? With primary or secondary early syphilis, that's untreated, right? That's the key word, untreated. The rate of transmission goes from 60% to 100%. So if you have a new conversion in pregnancy or you see a shanker, I mean, should you happen to see one? I haven't seen one like in 20 years. But if you see one, then treat it. And that 100% is only for untreated, so there is a time to intervene here. That's why we're doing this episode, right? Congenital syphilis can be almost completely preventable with appropriate prenatal care, appropriate and timely diagnosis, and quick treatment. So if you see it, treat it. Don't wait for a confirmation test. Just go, hey, look, I- I'm suspecting something is, is wrong here. Uh, you've got this sore. Your non-treponemal test is super high. I'd rather just treat you right now, we're going to wait for your confirmation test just to confirm that and report it for sure, but it's okay to treat empirically, especially if the RPR is exceedingly high, defined as more than 1 to 32 or 1 to 64 in some studies because those are not likely to be false positives, All right. So yes, you can treat empirically just based on a nonspecific, but you want to get that confirmation test without fail and the reason is not only do you definitely have to make sure that the patient has it but it also goes part of mandatory reporting and that requires a confirmatory test whether you're in the traditional pathway or the reverse sequence okay all right podcast family next let's cover maternal treatment based on cdc recommendations Y'all remember that the traditional guideline has been that primary and secondary syphilis can both be treated with benzathine penicillin at 2.4 million units as a single dose. Well, that's still totally correct if the patient is not pregnant. When pregnant, published evidence does indicate that additional therapy can be beneficial in order to prevent congenital syphilis. So even for women who have primary or secondary or early latent syphilis, a second dose of benzathine penicillin G at 2.4 million units can be given one week after the initial dose. You see how treatment is different in pregnancy than it is in the non-pregnant population, even though the dose of the medication is the same Reinjection is recommended even for early or secondary syphilis, that's primary or secondary syphilis, or early latent syphilis. Give them that second injection, because it helps better protect the baby. So Primary and secondary syphilis, or early latent syphilis, is one injection with a second injection one week later of benzathine penicillin G, 2.4 million units. Like in my population, and I'm sure it's in yours, women who come in and test positive with a positive confirmatory test or like, I don't know when I got it. I mean, I, I've been otherwise asymptomatic. So we consider them syphilis of unknown duration or late latent syphilis. Those still require the three injections. Okay, one. Uh, uh, each week apart, when we talk about spacing of those and when you need re-injection, if you fall off the protocol in just a minute, but it's three weekly injections of the same medication, same dose, benzathine penicillin G, 2.4 million units. You know, podcast family, one of the things that I always found super confusing was this whole thing about penicillin G, because you read some articles and it talks about benzathine penicillin, somewhere else it says penicillin G, and then yet other places it says bisillin, all right? So it can get a little confusing. And the short answer is bisillin is the long-acting form of penicillin G of benzathine penicillin. So they're all the same with one exception. There is a Bicillin CR, which is not the correct dose. So this actually uh, was a CDC warning that came out back in 2004. So what happened was out of LA, out of Los Angeles, there was a health clinic that was giving out uh, exposures to syphilis and was treating syphilis with the wrong bisilin, all right? So they were using bisilin CR, which is 1.2 million units of benzathine penicillin G, uh, rather than it being the 2.4 million units, all right? So remember that the answer of how do you treat syphilis in pregnancy? The answer is benzathine penicillin G, long-acting penicillin G, which is bicillin LA, all right? Long-acting, not the CR, Bicillin LA is the only recommended long-acting penicillin for treating syphilis in pregnancy. So yes, bicillin, uh, benzathine penicillin, penicillin G, it's all the same as long as it's 2.4 million units and the long-acting form of the benzathine penicillin G is what's recommended. When syphilis is diagnosed during the second half of pregnancy, management should include a detailed fetal level 2 ultrasound. You got to do that to look for congenital syphilis. Remember we said that after around 18 to 20 weeks, the fetal um, immune system is now mature and is able to make that reaction that can give some of the traditional sequelae, some of the stigmata of congenital syphilis. But that sonographic evaluation should never delay treatment. Sonographic signs of fetal or placental syphilis include fetal hepatomegaly, ascites, hydrops, fetal anemia, or a thickened placenta. All of these indicate a greater risk for fetal treatment failure. For these cases that look like there's in utero fetal exposure, make sure to get your ID and your MFM physician on board. And remember that a single injection is not sufficient for these children. So these require at least a second dose of Benicine penicillin G at 2.4 million units after one week from the first dose. So Remember, if you see congenital signs, you've got to get those patients treated and one shot is not enough. Also remember that women treated for syphilis during the second half of pregnancy are at increased risk of premature labor or fetal distress if that treatment precipitates the Jarix herxheimer reaction or the JH side effect. This typically happens within the first 24 hours after treatment and is the response to the, to the spirochetes dying and that immune-mediated you know, flare and inflammation that comes from that. These women should be advised to seek OB attention after treatment if they have any fever or start having contractions or if they have a decrease in fetal movements. Management of this is mainly supportive. The good news is that stillbirth is a super rare complication of this. However, concern for this complication should not delay treatment that's required. So treat them. You just got to give the patient the information that should they feel weird, definitely if they have fever, then they got to go back into labor and delivery for observation. No data are available to support that corticosteroid treatment alters the course of treatment-related complications during pregnancy, so at this time, preloading them with a steroid is not evidence-based. All right, podcast family, and here's yet another clinical pearl regarding timing of the series of injections missed doses that are more than nine days off, all right? So missed doses greater than nine days between administrations is not acceptable for pregnant women, and they got to start all over again. So let's say that again the optimal interval for receiving benzathine penicillin for those that are syphilis of unknown duration or late-latent syphilis. Remember, those are three injections, one week apart. The optimal interval between that is one week apart. It's seven days. So if they don't come in at day seven, then you got two days to find them and to avoid them coming back greater than nine days. So at 10 days or more, it's all over. They got to start all over again, all right? So if you ever asked, what is the maximum amount of time between penicillin Injections for syphilis of unknown duration or late latent syphilis, the answer is greater than nine, or in other words, 10 days or more. <music> All right, we're coming close to the end of the episode. So now let's focus on the second part, which was congenital syphilis, All right? Knowing that we're not pediatricians, we're not neonatologists, we don't take care of the baby so much after delivery. But there are important concepts here because this subject straddles the fence, right? The way that we prevent vertical transmission, which is early identification or early screening, early identification and appropriate treatment. That's how we prevent what's on the other side of the fence, which is congenital syphilis. But because congenital syphilis really is on the rise. I mean, we can't just deliver a baby and then just go, well, that's it. I wish you well. I and mean, we've got to know something about that. So let's just briefly, briefly, knowing that that's not our zone, right? We're going to stay in our lane, but we do have to educate ourselves once again. And it's a good reminder of just how difficult this diagnosis can be on the PD side, on the neonatal side, because some of those tests are, are, are very hard to interpret. So to complete this picture, let's now talk about implications of maternal diagnosis of syphilis and congenital syphilis as our last section before the end of the episode. Here's why this really does matter for us because this is how we're involved. For the neonate, inadequate maternal treatment for syphilis consists of any non-penicillin G therapy or penicillin G therapy that was given less than 30 days before delivery. So right off the bat, if they come in, you give them their first dose of penicillin and then they deliver and they're supposed to get three, that's inadequate treatment. Or if they complete all three, but it's less than 30 days before delivery, by definition, the CDC calls that inadequate maternal coverage for the prevention of congestion. Genital syphilis. This is why it's so key to have a great channel of communication with your neonatologist and your pediatric team because they got to know what to look out for. Diagnosis of congenital syphilis can be super difficult because maternal non-treponemal and the treponemal IgG antibodies are transferred from the placenta to the baby, so that complicates the interpretation of any reactive serological test for syphilis among those babies, especially for infants aged less than 30 days. So, treatment decisions frequently have to be made on the basis of identification of syphilis in the mom, the adequacy of maternal treatment, the presence of clinical or lab or radiological evidence of syphilis in the baby, and a comparison of maternal and neonatal non-treponemal serological titers, right? You got to know what those levels of RDR and VDRL are. They say RDR, RPR, <laughs> or VDRL. All right, podcast family, as we get to the end, here's another clinical pearl. According to the CDC, All babies born to mothers who have a reactive non-treponemal and a positive confirmatory treponemal test, they have to be delivered with a quantitative non-treponemal serological test, and that's by checking the baby's serum. And the reason is umbilical cord blood can become contaminated with maternal blood and yield a false positive result, all right? So don't use cord blood for this. It's too high stakes. It's got to be checked directly from the baby. And the same goes with checking the umbilical cord. I mean, don't collect the blood into a tube and then send that or stick the, the, the cord itself because Wharton's jelly within the umbilical cord can yield a false negative result, right? That's all straight out of the CDC's guidance. The non-treponemal test performed on the neonate should be the same type of non-treponemal test performed in the mother. And remember, that should be done from the baby's serum, not from the umbilical cord. Now, if you're in family medicine who does obstetrics, then the benefit for you is you get the whole picture, right? I mean, you've got the antepartum, the intrapartum, and you've got the pediatric approach because you can take care of the baby. I think that's pretty cool. All neonates born to women who have reactive non-treponemal serological tests for syphilis at delivery have to be examined thoroughly for evidence of congenital syphilis. And that includes looking for non-immune hydropes, I mean, conjugated or direct hyperbilirubinemia. They can have cholestatic jaundice or cholestasis. They've got to be evaluated for that. They've got to be evaluated for hepatosplenomegaly, for rhinitis, for skin rashes, or for pseudoparalysis of any extremity. I mean, this is a big detailed survey. Pathological examination of the placenta or the umbilical cord using specific staining, like a silver stain that's specific for T. pallidum, or you can do a T. pallidum PCR, can also be done, and that's straight out of the CDC guidance. Early congenital syphilis commonly manifests during the first three months of life. Remember, we said just because a baby looks asymptomatic at birth doesn't mean they're out of the woods? And that's true for up to two years. It just happens that early syphilis can happen within the first three months. So you gotta keep on the lookout. And some of these changes can include that characteristic eruptions of the skin or a macular copper-colored rash on the palms and soles and papular lesions around the nose and the mouth and also in the diaper area. They can also have petechial lesions. Generalized lymphadenopathy and hepatosplenomegaly often occur. The infant may fail to thrive and can have a characteristic mucopurulent or blood-stained nasal discharge that's called the syphilis snuffles. A few infants develop meningitis, choritis, hydrocephalus, or seizures, and others may be intellectually hindered. So this is a big deal. Now, within the first eight months of life, osteochondritis can occur, and this is especially true on the long bones and the ribs. There can also be some pseudo paralysis of the limbs with characteristic radiological changes in the bone. Late congenital syphilis typically manifests after two years of life, and this is a long road that 's why getting these patients identified and treated adequately during pregnancy is so crucial. You see that these poor kids. So late congenital syphilis typically manifests after two years of life, and these can cause gummatous ulcers that tend to involve the nose, the septum, and the heart palate, and also they can have periosteal lesions that result in shaber sins and bossing of the frontal and the parietal bones. Neurosyphilis is usually asymptomatic, but juvenile paresis and tabes dorsalis can still develop. Optic atrophy, sometimes leading to blindness, can also occur interstitial keratitis of the eyes can happen, and this can result in corneal scarring and blindness. Sensorineural deafness, which is often progressive, can appear at any age. And then remember the teeth. Remember Huntington's incisors. That's always a textbook question, and the answer is syphilis. Hutchinson incisors, mulberry molars, or periosteal fissures, and maldevelopment of the maxilla can result in the, quote, bulldog face, end quote, that's characteristic of this sequelae, although its pathognomonic findings of all of those items is pretty rare. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered vertical transmission of syphilis and congenital syphilis. We got to get this thing in check, man. My goodness, this is just awful. Well, as always, we're thankful for you and we hope this podcast was helpful and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.